Marketing That Works with Drew Bedard is a proud member of the Market Street Media Podcast Network. From their beautiful studio in downtown Johnson City, Market Street Media can help you create a podcast with no hassle. You don't have to fool with equipment. You don't have to fool with software. You don't have to worry about editing your podcast. Best of all, you don't have to worry about making embarrassing mistakes as you're trying to start your podcast. All you have to do is walk in, record your show, and walk out. Market Street Media does the rest. They'll even live stream your show to thousands of people on their Facebook page. Come see how fun and easy podcasting can be at Market Street Media. Find us online at marketstreet.media. That's marketstreet.media. I'm Drew Bedard, and this is Marketing That Works, a podcast about the tools, tips, and tactics that business owners and marketers need to wow their customers and grow their profits. Hey guys, welcome back to the show. Thanks again for listening. And if you'll share this with one person today, that would mean the world to me. I think you're really going to enjoy this exclusive interview today with a guy I've been a fan of for a really long time. His name is Roger Dooley. Roger Dooley is an author and international keynote speaker. His books include Friction, The Untapped Force That Can Be Your Most Powerful Advantage, um, which is, we're going to talk about that in the interview today. I think you guys would really benefit from picking it up. And he's also the author of Brainfluence, which is the same uh, name as his podcast, A Hundred Ways to Persuade and Convince Consumers with Neuromarketing. And we talk about neuromarketing on the podcast as well in this interview. So I think you guys are really going to enjoy it. But a little bit more about Roger. He writes the popular blog, Neuromarketing, as well as a column at Forbes.com. He is the founder of Duly Direct, a consultancy and co-founded College Confidential, the leading, the leading college-bound website. He's been a serial entrepreneur since he left a senior strategy position at a Fortune 1000 company to enter the then nascent home computer market. But really, Roger's best known right now for his, um, for his history and his knowledge of psychology, neuromarketing, um, and his recent book, Friction, again, which we will dive into in this interview. I think you guys would love and you'll want to pick up because it really talks about that force that's out there right now that's stopping consumers from maybe buying your products, maybe maybe choosing you as, as their number one uh, choice in a retail market. So again, hope you enjoy the interview. Here's Roger Dooley. Well, Roger Dooley, this is a tremendous honor for me. Welcome to the Marketing That Works pod, podcast. How are you today? I'm doing great, Drew, and thanks for having me on. Yes, sir. And uh, I can't wait for everybody to see uh, your virtual backdrop there with the, uh, with the books and, and everything. And that's the first thing right off the top. I want to encourage everybody. Roger, um, I talked about this a little bit in the bio at the top of the show, but he's an international keynote speaker and prolific writer and author of two books that I'm very, very fond of. One is Brainfluence, which is also the name of his podcast, and also Friction, which is a huge topic in the world of marketing and customer experience and customer service today. So one thing I wanted to start with though, Roger, is that your, um, your blog and a lot of your background is based around the idea and the, the principle of neuromarketing, but I would love to explain to the audience, what is that? Sure. And you may not get one, the same definition from, from everybody that you ask, but my definition is a broad one. Okay. And that is to use any understanding of how our brains work to market better. 
Now, some people like a more restrictive definition, and it's sometimes called consumer neuroscience that uses tools like EEG to measure brain waves or biometrics to measure the pulse rate and skin conductance and all those sorts of things. And from that, evaluate specific marketing materials, like evaluate a video advertisement or some print material and try and gauge the consumers or customers, because it can be B2B as well, non-conscious reaction. Because the, the whole concept behind neuromarketing is that, uh, first of all, people cannot really explain what they like, why they would do something, or whether they will do that thing in the future. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, in some cases, they don't want to if it's a topic that's sensitive for them. In other cases, they just can't explain. I mean, can you really explain in detail why you bought uh, a particular car that you did? I mean, you could probably explain certain aspects of it, but there are probably some other influences that were there that uh, uh, you either uh, don't want to admit or that uh, you simply just you know, aren't really consciously aware of. Right. And the whole concept behind neuromarketing is to get below the surface of the customer's brain and uh, figure out what's going on and how to do a better job of marketing to that customer. Yeah. So uh, what I focused on, because, because these tools like EEG and mm -hmm. biometrics and so on are relatively costly to use, although they are getting cheaper. In fact, there are some uh, tools like eye tracking, for example, mm -hmm. that are now getting very inexpensive to use. You can even do web-based or uh, mobile-based uh, mm -hmm. eye tracking studies. So the, the prices are coming down, but by and large, marketers can't really afford the time or the money to use those on answering every question. What I've focused on for probably the last 15 odd years or so is taking the tools of behavioral science, of psychology, and uh, of general neuroscience knowledge and turning those into actionable strategies for marketers. So they don't have to go out and run their own study necessarily, mm -hmm. but to give them a starting point. And having, having said that they don't have to, run, have to run studies, I do encourage all marketers to test. Mm -hmm. and to me, testing is absolutely essential. Mm -hmm. If you want to get, if you want to really market your customers correctly, even if you don't have tremendous volume, you can run very simple tests over time. When I send out one of my newsletters, I will often do split the recipients with two different subject lines. Mm -hmm. Not because uh, I'm going to then you know, roll out some bigger marketing base, on, but just to help me understand what my people respond to. Mm -hmm. And I think that's, that's the sort of thing that any marketer can do. Uh, so often we see hippo decisions where the highest paid person in the organization is the one that's choosing sure. the final design. Okay, what are, what's the website going to look like? Design A or design B? Uh, you know, it comes down to, well, I think design A is the one. Let's go with that one. Sure, uh, very then, then subjective. Forget about, it, forget about it for three years yeah. until gee, the website's looking dated. If you look at Amazon, Drew, when was the last time they redesigned their website? You know, if you think about it, it's like, gee, I don't know that they ever redesigned their website. It always looks the same. In right. fact, it is not the same as it was. There are lots of little changes. But if you could do a screenshot from 10 years ago compared to now, you'll be able to spot all sorts of little differences. But they have never done a big bang type redesign that the way many companies do it. Instead, they are constantly testing and optimizing. They'll mm -hmm. test, you know, putting uh, something in a different type, or they will test a different way of describing something. And 
this has enabled them to really optimize their design. So, yeah. you know, this obviously, unfortunately, none of us has the scale that Amazon does, but we can all do those sorts of tests in a small way and ultimately, uh, A, get a better job of, under, do a better job of understanding our customers. And then secondly, market to those customers more effectively. Yeah, absolutely. Your your example of Amazon, and I know we're going to talk about that a little bit more um, when we kind of uh, dive into friction. Um, but you're absolutely right that, you know, it's interesting that you talked about sort of the subjective design of marketers and business owners of, I like that. Um, so let's put that on the website. But really, uh, true marketers are looking at what their customer and how their customer responds to something and the customer experience. And really what you see with Amazon is that it's not about pretty. It's not about fashion. It's about function. And and it's truly about Jeff Bezos with that day one attitude of we're always just trying to make the site better for the customer. So design really isn't, there's design, yes, but then there's pretty design, aesthetic design that they really don't focus on all that much. They focus on conversion which I think is, is fantastic. Um, so thank you for unpacking that a little bit for, for the yeah, audience. I, I wouldn't yeah. minimize design, yeah. Drew. I think in right. certain instances, uh, for certain kinds of businesses, design is really important. If you are an ad agency or a design agency, sure. uh, you had better have a good looking website or mobile app because uh, people should trust you to be able to execute an attractive design. Right. And if uh, you know, it looks like uh, the dog's breakfast, as my friends in England say, uh, you know, you're not going to get many clients. If you are selling, say, a uh, $90,000 custom timepiece, uh, you, know, you had better have very high-end design on your website because it's got to convey the whole uh, image that this is a place that somebody who can afford to spend that kind of money uh, would want to shop. So uh, good, good point. Place, good but, point. But, but to me, it's, it's all about testing. In fact, I know a lot of people who are in the conversion optimization business. These are very smart people mm-hmm. who have helped dozens and hundreds of clients improve their website performance. And if you go to them and say, well, okay, hey, take a look at this website. What would you do? They can give you some suggestions say, okay, well, this, yeah, this probably is too small or people aren't going to be able to see this or this is confusing to the average customer. But they are going to just change that. They're going to say, okay, these are three things we should test. Even with their level of expertise, they aren't going to guarantee that something's going to work or just say, yeah, go with my gut feel, that's good enough. They're going to say, okay, you know, I think based on my experience that this improvement will help, we should test that. Yes, absolutely. Okay, absolutely. Good points and good counterpoint on the design piece because it it can and does matter um, in a lot of different instances and it's very important for different companies. So let's talk about your book, Friction, which which I absolutely love. And, and I spent um, probably six months diving into um, just looking at all of these different examples of removing friction, especially in the new digital age that we're in. And now we have COVID. So it's even more important to remove friction and, and have contactless X, Y, and Z. Um, but let's talk about the, the, the subtitle to your book is called The Untapped Force that can be your most powerful advantage. So would you talk a little bit about some of the principles in the book and why friction is so important for marketers and business owners to dive into? 
Sure. Well, let me first tell you the definition of friction that I'm using. Uh, and that is the simplest one is, I've got some longer definitions, but the simplest one is uh, friction is any unnecessary effort to perform a task. So uh, if something is unnecessarily effortful, there is friction there. And the reason I say uh, that it's a force that can be your advantage, 90% of the time or more, you want to remove friction because mm -hmm. it is getting in the way of your customer doing whatever it is you want, whether you are trying to generate leads, whether you're trying to generate orders, uh, any friction is going to slow down the customer. There are certain cases though, where adding friction can help. And um, sometimes certain luxury products make it difficult to buy. Um, part of that is because the person has to sort of go through this experience and expend the effort to do it. And they value the ultimate experience more. And there's other examples. You can steer customer behavior with friction. If you have uh, one path that you prefer they not take and one that you uh, would prefer they do take, you could add a little bit of friction to the less desirable path, not in a dark pattern sort of way so that you're manipulating your customers into sure. something that they don't want to do, but uh, that you can steer their behavior. And I think a great example comes from uh, the an area that probably most people are familiar with, and that is retirement planning. We all know that in the United States, uh, we have largely voluntary retirement planning, uh, unless we are lucky enough to have work for a business that has a defined pension, uh, that they will simply pay you out if you stay there for 20 or 30 years. Right. Uh, most of us are supposed to save for retirement using what are called 401k plans. These are private accounts. And the good thing is they can move with you. So if you change employers, you can still keep that. And it's, so it's, a, it's in that respect, a great system. But many people don't participate. And research ended up proving, this is one reason why Richard Thaler won a Nobel Prize. Mm -hmm. If you could simply make it easier to sign up, that people more people would sign up. And the way they really simplified it was, they opted people in. Instead of having people fill out a form to enroll, which is pretty typical, you, know, you want to enroll in a program, okay, here's a form to fill out. They said, okay, that is slowing people down. It's adding unnecessary friction. Instead, since we know that everybody should really be saving, let's opt them in, but make it easy for them to opt out. So it's, it's not like you're manipulating them into doing something that they don't want to do. Sure. Uh, in, in other words, like when you are automatically opted into somebody's spammy email list, uh, okay, that's, that's not the kind of opt-in that you want to use necessarily if it's automatic. Uh, but in this case, they said, okay, look, no problem. If you don't want to participate, then just, uh, you know, here's a, you can just say so and we will opt you out. But by uh, that simple friction elimination process, they dramatically increased the number of people that would save for retirement. And this is, I mean, this is really an important societal goal and it was such a simple thing. So in, in my book, Friction, I started off looking primarily at the sales and conversion aspect. That's what drew me to it. I was looking at, okay, how do we convert better? And all my research showed that if you can reduce friction, you'll get more customers. And if I looked at success stories like WhatsApp, for example, which was, was by far, was far from the only messaging application at the time or messaging platform but they made it ridiculously simple to sign up and ridiculously simple and fast to invite your friends. In fact, one user experience expert did a teardown on their onboarding process from start to finish, including verifying your mobile phone number. You could do the entire WhatsApp registration verification process in about two minutes and a few seconds. 
Yeah. And then they made it simple with just like one tap to invite your contacts. So this is how they grew to millions and millions of users in no time, because you can imagine, sign up a new user. And of course, they want to have people to talk to, right? So they invite their friends within, you know, by minute number three, these people are getting their invites. Some of them are signing up in two minutes and blasting out their friends. Right. And it turned into a viral phenomenon that ended up making the company worth $25 billion. Right. And they were almost pre-revenue. I mean, it's insane, but uh, it was, they just made it so easy. And uh, in fact, friction has been, the one area where it's gotten a lot of traction has been in Silicon Valley. For the last yes. five or 10 years, people have been quite aware by simplifying processes, making things easy, you can get people to do those things. Right. And it's, you know, it's not rocket science, but Richard Thaler himself says that if you want to motivate, make people do something, if you want to get people to do something, make it easier. Yeah. And I sense that that frustrates him because he's called in to talk to national governments about how we can improve these processes and how we can get more people to do what we want them to do. And his answer is pretty simple. We'll make it easier. And it's always like, well, that's too simple. We want some sort of magic behavioral science dust that you're going to sprinkle on this. Yeah. And it's you know going to make people want to do it or whatever. And he said, just make it, make it easier. And obviously both in corporate America and in our government, we have a lot of processes that have a lot of friction in them even today. And, and to me, that's, that's kind of wild that, you know, we could have Nobel Prizes awarded for such a simple understanding, but leaders don't internalize that. Yeah, I, I, I'd love your thoughts on why you think that is. I mean, it just seems like such a simple principle to build into a company to always be analyzing your customer interfaces um, and, and, you know, you're talking about governments, so governments, their customers are the citizens, but for most people, they have paying customers. And like you just said, Richard Thaler um, is explaining to everybody, just if you want to make more revenue, if you want to grow your user base, just make things simpler. And I mean, I think, and again, you use this example and talk a lot about Amazon that, you know, one, one click pay and all these other things that are out there, like, and I'll give you an example. We were on the phone with a company yesterday that wants to make um, a concessions experience better at a stadium. And they said, well, we can make it so that we build it into your app, people click on it, and then they can go to a fast lane type experience. And for some reason, you know, my mind goes, that's the first things we should be working on. Those should be first in line from a capital expense instead of last in line. Disney put it first in line when they did the magic band and different things like that. I don't know. Do you have anything to explain the psychology yes, I, behind that? Yeah. I've, got, I've got a few explanations, Drew. Yeah. And, uh, uh, you know, one is that uh, for every 10 companies that claim to be customer centric, putting the customer first, probably one is, I mean, we keep going back to Amazon, but they are a company that puts the customer first. I mean, they really do. I was in the mail order business for years uh, and very familiar with e-commerce and returns are the devil, okay? They are incredibly expensive for businesses. Merchandise comes back damaged. They can't resell it. They can't always get their money back from the vendor. You've got to have 
customer service people process it. You've got to have warehouse people process it. Now, every time you get a return, it costs you a ton of money. And in fact, I remember when I was in the mail order business, I figured that if I sold one printer, I was selling electronic components and computer uh, systems. If somebody returned one printer based on the margins that I had and the cost of uh, that, I would probably have to sell 10 more printers just to make back the cost of that return. So many companies try and discourage returns. Amazon makes returns easy because they are truly customer centric. Right. And they get the importance of effort. You know, a lot of companies are not, don't have a leader like Jeff Bezos who will uh, push back. You know, something that I see pretty often is somebody in, who has responsibility for customer experience is going to say, look, you know, this process that we have uh, on our website for authenticating users is cumbersome. You know, every time they come back, they have to log in. You know, we sh uh, that is putting them to additional effort. They shouldn't have to do that under normal circumstances. Uh, and in fact, you may have noticed Amazon, you never get logged out. You've got to reformat your hard drive to get logged out of Amazon. And then your browser will fill the password for you. So you're, you're back in business. Yep. Uh, but there are a lot of companies that automatically log you out. And if you ask them why, the, if you ask, well, I've asked the CEO why, they'll say, well, our security person says that this is best practice and it's essential to prevent us from getting hacked or protect our customers' data. So that's why we do that. Mm -hmm. I think that if you went to Jeff Bezos and gave him that rationale, he would say, okay, prove it. You know, you show me the data that we're actually going to lose money uh, if we do this compared to the sales we're gonna, going to lose if we put customers through additional processes. In fact, you know, Amazon does not have zero security. It seems like they're sort of loosey-goosey, but they're actually not. Uh, if, uh, when you go to Amazon, you're always logged in. That one-click button is right there so you can order uh, with one tiny little click. Yep. And it'll be, uh, you know it's going to be on your doorstep in 48 hours or less. But uh, if you try and do something a, a little bit risky, they will then re-authenticate you. If you decide to send gift cards to a friend or... And sending gift Amazon gift cards is like sending cash pretty much. It is. Or if you decide to uh, ship a TV to an address that you've never shipped to before, uh, they will then re-authenticate you. They'll ask you for, to re-log in. They'll ask you for your credit card information, something. But right. what they do is they enable those 99% of the low-risk transactions uh, to be accomplished with near zero friction with that one-click button. But when they enter this realm of a higher-risk transaction, then, okay, we're going to do something extra to make sure that you're really you. Yeah. Uh, and it's, uh, that really, it keeps the customer safe. It keeps Amazon's bottom line safe, mm -hmm. uh, but it also generates more revenue than if like so many businesses, they just logged you out uh, and forced you to re-authenticate every time you got in because most businesses operate on sort of a walled garden basis uh, that, you know, you're either in and you can do anything that you want or you are, outside and you really can't access any of your account information. You can't do anything. Yeah. You're just, you're not, you don't exist, or at least you don't exist as a logged in customer yeah. where uh, smart companies have a, sort of a layered approach that, okay, this, you can do all this stuff really easy without reauthenticating. Now this is higher risk. Uh, maybe uh, that will, will do something about, for example, like United Airlines is uh, when I was flying and I, uh, until this, I was flying 100,000 miles a year on United, so right. I got to know them very well. And their user experience on their website is pretty terrible. Oddly, their mobile app is pretty darn good, so I'm assuming there's different teams involved in that. Right. But just, I mean, the logouts, the passwords, the 
the challenges. Like every, every month or so, they say, we don't recognize your device. And I've got to answer questions about my best friend's birthday. And I've got right. to figure out what I said you know, five years earlier. It's, it's just insane. A horrible user experience. Uh, but I'm guessing that there, the security person has the uh, upper hand. And when the customer experience people say, well, our customers hate this. Well, yeah, but we got to do that to protect them. It's for their own good. And they just, they just roll with that. But that's an example of uh, a sort of single wall situation because there are certain high-risk transactions, okay? I should be able to search flights, uh, maybe even change a flight or book a flight or something. If it's me and if I'm the, if I'm the traveler, okay, is some other person going to book a flight uh, for me someplace using my passport and such? You know, that's, that's not going to make any sense. But uh, if I say, okay, I want to transfer 200,000 miles to... Um, you know, my friend in uh, Bombay, well, okay, hold on, Roger, we need to reauthenticate you before you yeah, transfer sure. all those miles. But, but that isn't how they do it. Uh, so, you know, to me, there are a lot of reasons, but just simple customer focus would probably, uh, and also observing customers, I, th- I don't think people realize what they are putting customers through. Uh, you know, I've uh, seen, uh, in, in fact, a, a friend of mine, uh, uh, who may, you may know, at least by reputation, is Martin Lindstrom. He's written mm-hmm. about neuromarketing and branding and really super smart guy. And he's got a new book coming out that uh, it's been delayed because of the pandemic situation. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, uh, he has put uh, he has some great stories in there where he's put executives through what their customers have to go through. Uh, and I, I'm not going to uh, spoil the fun by revealing the details, but uh, when a and one of the corporate executives suddenly had to do what their customers were routinely forced to do. It was like, holy cow, this is awful. What, I mean, this is, this is what people have to do. So it just, uh, uh, you know, people don't always realize that. And if they could uh, empathize with their customer, either by doing it or just putting themselves in their position. I mean, to me, it's like the, uh, you know, the airline CEO who says, oh, we offer pretty good flight experience who has never sat in the uh, back row of basic economy that doesn't recline, you know, uh, put that CEO back there for a four hour flight and see uh, what he, or maybe someday she thinks of the service. Yeah. Empathy is so critically important for people that run companies. I mean, they, they have to be understanding and empathetic to what their customers are going through. Um, You know, when you were talking about Amazon a few minutes ago, I saw someone sent a social post out one time that said Amazon has gotten to be so fun and so addictive that people almost look at it like a social medium that they'll go to it every day and see, Hey, what deal do they have for me today? And I was noticing on their mobile um, application just, you know, I mean, I don't do the one click ordering all the time, but I did it a couple of weeks ago and it was so much fun to swipe across and, and have a one click order. And I was just, again, removing friction for me has made Amazon. And, and this is when you look at the largest companies in the world, uh, when, you know, when it comes down to market cap, you look at Amazon and Apple and different things and you just, I mean, there's just fundamental principles that say they make it easy to buy their products. Well, let me give you one story, Drew, because yeah. uh, it involves both of those brands, Amazon yep. and Apple. Uh, and you, you alluded to this just now. Uh, you talked about one-click ordering. Yep. Well, back in 1998, when a lot of companies were still trying to figure out what e-commerce was, Amazon patented one-click ordering. 
And a lot of companies didn't think you could do that. I mean, it was just you know, it's too simple, too obvious. But Barnes & Noble, their chief competitor at the time, because Amazon was mostly books, implemented something similar to one click on their site, and they got in a big legal fight with Amazon. And after a few million dollars in expense and a, you know, a couple of years, Amazon prevailed, their patent was valid. And what did they force Barnes & Noble to do and other e-commerce competitors? Add one tiny little click, that's all. Millions of dollars to gain one little click advantage. You know? And at the same time, uh, there was another smart person that, Steve Jobs was about to launch Apple's new music store. And he saw one-click ordering, said, we need that. They didn't try and fight the patent. They didn't try and create a technical workaround. They went to Amazon and paid them a million bucks so that they too could have that one tiny little click advantage. Uh, and that's all the effort. And so when you go to your developers and say, hey, we'd like to eliminate a few keystrokes here. They're gonna say, oh, that's nothing. And people are used to that, it's a few keystrokes. You know, it was worth millions of dollars for Amazon and Apple to gain one single click advantage. Yep. You know, and uh, people don't understand how even small amounts of effort can make a difference. Yeah, it's amazing. And it's, it's one thing that I, um, I think almost sometimes I get made fun of for how obsessive I am about um, how people route through the website or in the buying process. I remember I made a big stink a few years ago about cart abandonment and about, you know, people were having to go through so many steps in the process. And, you know, we were having some ridiculous abandonment when we got to maybe it was either the fees or putting their address or, you know, starting a new account. And I was like, how do we cut down on things like this? But it, but that's the type of thing. I think this is what your overall message is, is that these are the type of things that companies should be looking at. Right. Well, I've got, I've got some interesting data on card abandonment because uh, uh, the most recent number I had, and it's only an estimate of course, is that uh, a couple of years ago, $4.6 $4.6 trillion was abandoned in e-commerce shopping carts overall. And like, nobody really knows what that number is, but uh, somebody calculated that. And to me, uh, it's probably pretty uh, realistic in terms of magnitude. And when uh, one company looked at the reasons for cart abandonment, they surveyed customers to find, okay, why did you abandon your cart? Most of them were frictional in nature. It was yeah. things like a complicated checkout process, uh, the need to set up an account. You just mentioned that, Drew. You, know, yeah. you don't... Some companies, many companies don't force you to set up an account. Uh, things that are confusing. You know, one thing that Amazon does that's really smart, they've got, if you check out manually, you don't use the one-click process. If you go through the cart process, right. uh, you have to go through a couple of screens. They always tell you what's happening. The continue button will say underneath it, you'll have a chance to review your order before you check out. Right. Uh, I've been on e-commerce sites where there's a next or a continue and I don't know if that is going to result in a, thank you for your order, Roger, uh, we're ready to go. Right. When I want, I'm not sure whether what the shipping charge is or whether they applied the coupon that I think they applied and so on. Uh, but you know, Amazon has optimized every little bit of that to make it flow easily. The customer can move confidently from one step to the next. Obviously eliminating steps is the best part, but uh, they give customers the confidence to I'll move without hesitating and saying, oh man, uh, you know, what's going to happen right. if I do this? Stress, anxiety, these things, if they build up, you see more opt-out, right? You see more cart abandonment when stress, anxiety, surprises pop up. That's why a lot of times, you know, you, with Amazon, other than maybe state tax now these days, 
you kind of know what the price is all the way through and, and you're confident when you get to that end screen to press purchase that you weren't duped into it's going to cost this much, but then there's going to be exorbitant fees on top, especially if you're a prime customer. Yeah. And it's, uh, you know, it just makes so much difference that uh, they, uh, they give the customer that level of confidence that, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, so many companies uh, just don't offer that. And, you know, trust is important. Uh, and let me, let me uh, talk about loyalty. Because yes. One thing that, uh, you know, you mentioned sales tax. I've been a very loyal Amazon customer for probably 10 plus, maybe 15 years. Sure. And for the last 10 easily, just most of my online purchases come from Amazon. Rarely do I shop around unless they actually, I'm looking for something really specialized that they don't have. And a few years ago in the state of Texas, my loyalty was tested. They were not charging Texas sales tax. They worked a deal with the state where they would begin charging sales tax. And suddenly my prices went up 8%, 8%, which is not a small price increase. 8% immediate price increase. And so I said, okay, I'm going to shop around more. You know, I'm going to check out Overstock or some of these other companies that I might at the time not have to pay tax with, uh, eBay. And in fact, I look back a year later and I, my behavior had changed just about zero. It was, I trusted Amazon too much. I was too loyal. I was, uh, it was too easy just to keep doing business with them. And so I just swallowed that 8% price increase. You know, and if, if you can get your customers to swallow an 8% price increase on basically products that are widely available, uh, you're doing something right. Right. And, they and build that trust really over is. time. Right. I mean, that's, you know, yeah, that's what's amazing about um, Amazon is that, you know, once your credit card is in there and again, that seamless shopping experience, but then, you know, they deliver on their, uh, you know, that box shows up at your door there's something so, you know, there's that dopamine hit that you get when it shows up at your door, but it's, but you build that up enough times and you become, you know, Pavlovian in some level. It's like, I'm not going to go anywhere else when I'm going to go here because I know they're going to serve me the food. You know what I mean? And they're going to do it every time on time. Yeah. Yeah, You know, uh, it's, it's funny you should mention that Uh, in one of my keynote slide decks, I don't have it in any of my current uh, decks right now, but I had a photo of an Amazon Prime truck with the driver carrying a box toward my doorstep uh, and follow that with a slide for uh, the chemical formula of dopamine <laughs> uh, because, uh, you know, it is, uh, you know, it's like, you know, when you see that truck, yes, something good is coming for me and you anticipate those rewards. Uh, so what dopamine does, it's reward anticipation. Uh, and you, well, all you do is see that, and you know, that there's going to be something good in that box that you wanted. So that's, that's really great. You know, uh, when we talk about loyalty, Gartner, uh, the big market research company, did some really remarkable research on customer service interactions. When people have to interact with a brand, uh, maybe they've got a problem, a question, tech support, a return, any kind of interaction outside the just exact normal order flow where it all happens pretty much without uh, human uh, involvement. Uh, what they found was pretty amazing. Uh, they put people into categories of high effort interactions and low effort interactions. Those who had a high effort interaction, uh, 96, 90, yeah, 96% of them said they would be disloyal to the brand. That's about 10 times as high as those customers who had a low effort interaction. Only 4% of the high effort customers said they would buy again uh, compared to about 94% of the low effort, or, uh, 
Yeah, lower for yes. customers. Yes, yep. yep. Make sure, make sure. Right, the, yep. Uh, no, you got it. Right there. Yeah. Uh, and, and you know how important word of mouth is these days? You've got social media, you've got review sites and rating sites and people, that's the first thing people check. Well, uh, 88% of the high effort customers said they would say bad things about the brand compared to just 1% of the low effort customers. And, and the scary thing, Drew, is that effort is in your customer's head. Mm. Uh, it is not an absolute standard where you can say, okay, we've got enough effort out of this. We're good now. They are comparing your experience to Uber, to Amazon, to whatever they think a low effort experience is. And if yours seems more effortful, then it's a high effort experience. And that's a huge driver of loyalty and of word of mouth. So, uh, you know, that's why, you know, I'm not sure that even Jeff Bezos knew that when he was focused uh, so relentlessly on minimizing customer effort. But uh, whether it was uh, knowledge or intuition, uh, he really got it right. Yeah, absolutely. That, that, that entire um, principle you just talked about of low effort um, interactions, um, I, I brought that to our company last year to talk about a secondary, you know, there's net promoter score, there's other research scores that you can go into. I said, but one of the most important things is if we can, now this takes a lot of moving parts if you want to do it correctly and do it at different points in the interaction with customers, but um, a customer effort score, CES, yes. um, but very, would you, would you advise companies to get into that as well? Yes, I'm, I'm a fan of customer effort score because it's measuring their perception of effort, which is what right. counts. Right. You know, I mean, I, I would advise measuring effort in a couple of ways. Uh, doing a customer effort score measurement, and I don't think you necessarily have to buy the product. You can ask a similar question uh, and uh, you know, interpret your results in some way, the, uh, but also measuring the absolute effort. In other words, uh, if you can correlate that with, wow, this person took five minutes to check out and they said it was effortful. Go back and look at the data. Why did it take them five minutes to check out? You know, uh, you might find some uh, answers in your data. And yes. So to me, data is really important and you can get uh, all kinds of data. You can, for instance, even, you know, very small businesses, some of these tools are free or ridiculously cheap. You can do click tracking. Yes. You know, if people are clicking on stuff on your website or your mobile app that is not clickable, you know, that means not that they are stupid, uh, that because they, you go to the, the no, they expect something. So then they're right, frustrated. Right. They, they think it's, uh, they get it frustrates them. They think it's right. applicable and it's not. And the web designer might likely say to you, ah, well, you can't fix stupid. I mean, obviously that's not clickable. I, you know? I hate that answer. Yeah, and it's, they're humans. You know, I mean, just like right. we are. Yeah. Yeah. You know, if you need us, you know, outside input, you know, have your mom or if you're young enough, have your grandmom, uh, uh, try out whatever it is you want people to do. You know, if they can't figure it out, then you can be pretty sure that many of your customers can't figure it out either. Yeah, or and children. You know, all these tools are so simple. I mean, obviously, uh, you could spend, uh, you know, massive amounts of time and money analyzing absolutely everything. But I think by cherry picking a few things and doing them for a period of time, uh, you can hone in on certain problems. You know, figure out, well, gee, we do have a card abandonment problem. Or actually, our card abandonment is, abandonment is the problem it's generating the leads in the first place. It's the problem or something, you know, figure out where your problems are uh, and instrument those, look at your digital data, get feedback from your customers in some form or other. And, uh, you know, you can do uh, simple tests. You can do eye tracking now with, the tools are not the most accurate, but you can do like online, uh, online, uh, you know, online yes. eye tracking panels. Yep. For yep. Just, you know, maybe a couple hundred bucks 
uh, and they can look at your mobile app or your web app, your website, and tell you what people are looking at. Absolutely. I've used and, multiple free tools. And like today I, on any website that I'm associated with, we use the tool Hotjar because Hotjar does all of those things. It can do process tracking, heat tracking, um, you know, as far as scroll tracking, click probably. scroll tracking, click tracking, all those different things for free. So, you know, it's, it's amazing what you, and you, I, I always joke about this with colleagues. I'm like, if you want to have a, a very educational day, but a cringeworthy experience, do a hot jar test on click tracking and watch people record, record your visitors, watch people interact with your website and you will both, it's incredibly educational of what you can change to make things better, but you're sitting there most of the time going, oh my gosh, I made this so hard for my customers to find what I want them to find. Yeah, and that's way cheaper than, uh, say, setting up a usability lab uh, in your yeah. office or bringing people in and observing them with video and such. I mean, you could do that if you've got the resources and you may learn something else there. But, you know, using some of these simple tools, uh, using user testing tools, which I have kind of mixed feelings about. I think that sure. for getting very quick feedback on a new app or new website or some significant design change or whatever it is that you're doing, these online testing panels like from usertesting.com are yeah. pretty good and pretty cheap way of doing it. I do think that to some degree they can become almost professional website or app evaluators because you know they're they're supposed to be providing a running commentary as they go where they're giving the order. Okay, figure out how to find uh, winter gloves uh, on this site and then buy a pair of pair of large red ones or something. Uh, you know they're going through the process and talking through it. If you do that for a hundred or two hundred websites, you become <laughs> a professional. A website analyzer, website critic, shopper, right? Uh, yeah, so, <laughs> yeah. uh, but but nevertheless, that even that flawed feedback will give you something. And because they are experienced, some things may pop out of them and say, "Well, you know, they they may verbalize, wow, that's a weird place to put the buy button. I almost didn't see it over there in the corner." Yeah, uh, as absolutely. opposed to a new user who's just kind of you know oblivious and wandering around. Yeah, absolutely. So, Roger, this has been. Amazing. And uh, thank you. I, th I think you and I could probably geek out on marketing probably all day, talk about all these different topics, but you're a busy guy and I want to, I want to be respectful of your time. Let's, I, you covered, I had a couple um, uh, rapid fire questions, but really I'm going to go right into my final one because I think the, one of the questions was going to be about one tactic, but I think you've given us about 20 different things to analyze and tactics that we can do, not even tools, you know, even we've given tools, but you know, let's not, we don't have to talk about social and email marketing. This is really about customer experience. And I think you've given the audience a ton of tools and tactics and tricks and tips to go back to their customer experience and see how can we remove friction. I do want to ask you before you go, um, what is one book that you probably gift the most or that you would recommend that, um, that the audience maybe pick up that will be really educational for them? Well, other than your I, books. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll skip over those. Uh, although I would highly recommend those, of course. But no, <laughs> I would, I, I'm going I'm to give you two, if I can, Drew. Okay. Uh, one is from a more personal development standpoint, and that would be Atomic Habits by James Clear. It's really an excellent guide to habit formation, and he makes it seem easy. Now, forming good habits, especially difficult habits, uh, like, uh, you know, uh, working out, uh, he's, he's a serious weightlifter. Uh, so, uh, you know, those are not necessarily easy habits to form, but he makes it seem easy. And his methods are, do allow you to 
start slowly and build up so you don't get discouraged. So I, I recommend that from a personal development standpoint. And from a business standpoint, uh, this is one that is not that well-known of a book, but I highly recommend it. It is uh, Trust Factor by Paul Zak. He's mm -hmm. the oxytocin researcher who discovered that was the hormone of trust. And he chronicles some amazing research that he and his team did where they went into companies and they were trying to determine what makes companies high performing. So they selected a range of companies who were high performers and not so high performers. And they did a lot of employee surveys, like ask people a whole bunch of questions, including questions about trust. And then they also took thousands and thousands of blood samples. And what they found was that high performing companies were high trust companies. Hmm. And they determined that not only by the responses to the surveys, because as a neuromarketing guy, I know that surveys don't always give you accurate answers, but right. by the blood samples too. And you know, to me, that is a message that wow. any company can internalize. If you have higher levels of trust between the business and the individual employee, uh, between the employees and each other, between the bosses and the employees and so on, where you have high levels of trust, you will have higher performance. And I uh, cite that work in friction because so often we have bad processes in companies because there's a lack of trust. We, at some point, some manager or big boss determines, well, people are gonna do this wrong. They're gonna abuse the system somehow. So we're gonna put these checks and balances in place, like for expense reporting. You know, uh, if, you wanna, if you wanna be reimbursed for that $2 cup of coffee, you had better staple that paper receipt to your expense report. Or these days, you had better take a photograph of it, uh, upload the photograph to our expense app and associate it with the correct line item uh, because we don't think that we can trust you that you bought a $2 cup of coffee at the airport. Uh, you might be hard. have difficulty finding a $2 cup of coffee at the airport today. But uh, <laughs> uh, it's, uh, I mean, you know, we, we have these oh, processes in place. Or something has to be approved by three layers of management mm -hmm. uh, because we don't, trust uh, the people to do it right or to do it honestly. When there's more trust, uh, you, you can eliminate some of these bad processes. And overall, people are more willing to, to get with the mission of the company. You know, if they don't feel trusted, are they really going to buy into the company's mission statement or feel that they are part of a true team? Mm -hmm. No, they're not if, it's, if there's a lack of trust. So to me, though, so those are my two recommendations, Drew. That's wonderful. I have not heard of Trust Factor, so that's great. That's another one that I'll pick up. So um, awesome. And again, yes, of course, I want to uh, encourage people to pick up Brain Fluence and Friction by Roger Dooley. So Roger, just uh, one more thing. Let everybody know out there where they can find you and how they can follow uh, your career and your writing and everything else. Well, on social media, I am at Roger Dooley at most places like Twitter and Instagram or simply Roger Dooley on Facebook and LinkedIn. Uh, the best jumping off point for all my stuff, including my podcast, my books, my various blogs, some of which are on different sites, uh, is rogerdooley.com. Perfect. All right. Well, we'll put that in the show notes. Make sure everybody checks that out. Roger, thank you so much. Again, a great honor. I'm a huge fan of your work and uh, I'll be shouting it from the rooftops to make sure that everybody goes and checks out all of your books and uh, continues to follow your podcast and your newsletter because those are excellent as well. Thanks again, Roger. Well, thank you, Drew. It's been fun. Yes, sir. Thank you for listening to the Marketing That Works podcast. To find out more and to get the show notes and everything that's going on, 
Go to marketstreet.media. That's where I house this wonderful podcast on the Market Street Media Podcast Network. So thanks. Check it out. And we'll see you on the next episode.